Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Here we are in message 96 this week of Luke chapter 16. Take your Bibles and turn there as we're going to finish off this chapter today titled Unconvinced unconvinced. Did you know that one survey from 2019 showed that uh, 10% of Americans believe that the moon landing was fake? While an Instagram post with more than 43, almost 44,000 likes claimed that 89% of Americans under the age of 45 believe that the 1969 Apollo moon landing never happened. They remain unconvinced. Doesn't matter how much evidence, how many uh, people above 45 say, yes, we were there, we watched it, so on and so forth. It wasn't there. I remember... um uh, remember the, the one of the, 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 the ones that the astronauts, Buzz Aldrin, some of us that are older remember him. One time a man went up to him when this, and Buzz was like in his 70s or 80s at this time, uh, so not too long ago, but a young man went up to him and says, I don't believe you landed on the moon. You know what his, what his reaction was? He decked him. <laughs> Punched him. I was there. I stepped on the moon. But that's where we live in a society in that way. According to another survey, a majority of Americans believe that the government is concealing information about the 9-11 attacks and maybe even part of it. There is a great group of, uh, of Americans who believe that Roosevelt knew that the Japanese was going to attack Pearl Harbor, but yet held that information back as a way so that we could enter the war, uh, World War II back then. But going from there, let's go now to biblical things. 44 or 46%, excuse me, 46, almost half of those who proclaim to be evangelicals, who proclaim to believe that God is God, that Jesus is God, accepts the worship of all, accepts the, that believes that God accepts the worship of all religions, including not only Christianity, but Judaism as well as Islam. Almost half of evangelicals believe that God accepts worship no matter who you worship. Sadly, only 38% believe Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. He's a great teacher. This is those who proclaim to be Christians. 38% believe that Jesus was not God. While 61% believe that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. They're unconvinced of the biblical evidence and the biblical witness that's found in Scripture. These are alarming stats, especially for those who proclaim to be Christians, proclaim those who read Scripture. It seems that in many ways, both Americans and Christians are unconvinced by the claims of the claims of authorities and the Bible. No matter how much evidence is given to demonstrate and prove the truth, many will struggle with accepting it. And maybe even here today, there's some of you that are convinced of the claims of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're unconvinced of the biblical truth, so whether there are just two genders or, or whatever it might be, you're, you're unconvinced of biblical evidence. But as we're looking up in Luke, many are drawn to the message 
and the ministry and the man of Jesus Christ. They, they understand there is something different about him. They are amazed at his teaching, astounded at his miracles, and, and, and just not really sure of who he is, but yet they're drawn to him. Many are proclaiming him, many are repenting and following him, but yet there always seems to be this group that really just wants Jesus for their own purposes. I think that's many people today as well. But then we see that these religious leaders who seem to follow and hang on every word and watch every moment of him, not to worship him, but to criticize, to ridicule, to find fault with him. Their hearts have been hardened against the gospel message. They do not believe the kingdom of God that he's come to proclaim is real. They believe that Jesus has changed the rules of the game, that he's speaking, he's speaking maybe of the kingdom of God, but it's a different kingdom. And so they reject his message because it's different from what they believe that the scripture has taught. To them, they believe that Jesus is abolishing the law and the prophets. However, Jesus has been emphasizing that he is actually fulfilling the very promises of the Old Testament, the prophets and the law. In today's passage, Jesus continues warning the Pharisees the error of their ways. Their rejection of the message of Jesus is going to cost them dearly. And let me tell you that if you reject that Jesus is God, then you're going to pay a dear cost for that belief. Through another parable, he informs them that their trust in religious traditions, self-righteousness, and all of their self-justification of why they are good people will not save them from that final judgment. So with that, you've got your Bibles open, or maybe your tablet, or maybe your phone, Luke chapter 16, 19 to 21. We're just going to read those few verses just to start off with. Jesus begins the story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So, Father, we open it up again to a familiar passage to many of us. And, Father, I pray that you help us as we do this work of opening your word and then interpreting and then apply it, that we do so in a way that is convincing through the Holy Spirit's work that scriptures are true. That Luke has done his, his diligent duty to, get duty to give us an orderly account of the life and ministry of Christ. That these words are, are, are maybe 2,000 years old, but yet, Father, you have preserved them for us today. And they're profitable for us. So open up our minds and hearts to receive it with thanksgiving, with gratitude, and more importantly, Lord, that we would open our hearts, that the Spirit may have free work to do the work that you've called it to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, early in this chapter, Jesus has warned the Pharisees, who were described as lovers of money, that no man can serve two masters. No servant can serve two masters. He either love the one and hate the other, or vice versa. And then he ends by, you cannot serve God in money. They were, they were very money hungry. They were very attached to what money could do for them, whether it was economic status, whether it was providing for the things they want. And they viewed Jesus as a threat, a threat to their livelihood, to their reputations and their control over the people. 
They accuse him of trying to alter and abolish the law and the prophets, the writings of what you and I know as the Old Testament. He now shares a parable here to drive home the point that their continuing rejection of his ministry will lead to drastic, eternal condemnation, to eternal consequences. The parable introduces the contrast between two men, one an unnamed rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. Now, this is the only parable that that Jesus uses that shares that names one of the characters. Some have assumed then that this is a true story of two people, and it very well could be, or it could just be another parable in which Jesus is using a name to give us an inside look at, at, at a character. It's not necessary for the point of the parable, so in either way, let us understand what it has to say. The first character is only identified as the rich man. He lives a luxurious life. He is described as a man who wore only the finest of clothes that were usually reserved for royalty or for special purposes. But this man, he wore them daily. In addition, he ate a manner that only few could afford. He was living the good life. It seemed that he lived a life of ease, of comfort, and excess. To many, this would be viewed as one with divine favor. So the Pharisees hearing this saying, yes, God must be with that one. If, if he is wealthy, if he's living the good life, then, then he must be uh, having God's favor on him. By the way, that's a doctrine of belief that many today believe, and even churches that are here in Orange and elsewhere that preach the prosperity gospel. Or someone like a Joel Osteen that every day could be Friday. If God wants you to be wealthy and healthy and wise... Well, he wants you to be wise. But the other two might be something that he may not have planned for us. But to them, they're saying, all right, this man is the one of divine favor. So this grabs their attention. They would be represented by this kind of man. Yet he was selfish, as you and I read this. He was uncaring. As he ignored the least among them, including the beggar sitting at his gate, one that he would pass in and out every day. He had no care for this man. The second character, Lazarus, is described as a beggar. He's a poor man who sat at the gate, hoping to get some coin and a few scraps of food that might fall from the man's table. His body is filled with sores, and his only source of relief is when the wild mangy dogs, that many people would consider dirty, still do in the Middle East, would come and lick his sores. That was his life. Day in, and day out. He doesn't have much hope or aspirations. Jesus points out that his only desire was to be fed from the garbage that the man had, whatever would fall from the man's table. We don't know if he's sick. We don't know if he's disabled. Some, he's just a poor man. Did he deserve this? We're not really told, other than as we look here, we're going to see that, that God's going to count him as a righteous man. Interestingly, the name Lazarus was the third most popular Jewish name in the first century. So many people would then grab a hold of that. And it means, listen, Lazarus means God helps. However, by all accounts from this story, it would seem that this man has actually been abandoned by God. He could claim like David, oh, where does my help come from? Could you imagine living every day just waiting for a rich man who's dressed in the finest hoping that you're going to get some scraps and digging through garbage. This was this man. To them, this would show God's divine dishonor. 
to be poor, to be a beggar, to be a man of this kind would say, this man deserves what he gets. So this is the Pharisees, they're thinking. Disciples and others, their hearts would actually think the same thing. The wealthy man has God's favor. The one who's the beggar has God's disfavor. Unfortunately, many times we have the same thoughts, do we not? This man must deserve it. But after introducing and describing the two characters, Jesus shares that though their life circumstances were very different, a great equalizer happened to both of them, as both have the same thing that happened, death. Look at verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That's important. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. He saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus was at his side. Now, of course, this doesn't take any one of us by surprise as death comes to all of us, right? No one escapes death except for Christ himself. And he died. He rose, but death comes to all. The writer of Hebrews points out that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. What most forget is the warning of the judgment. We forget that God has warned us of this. This is the day when we all have to give account for what we've done. In this case, we see that their fortunes have changed, as now Lazarus is carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. He, by the way, is not even given a funeral. He finds himself probably in a potter's field. That's a, that's a name that you would give to people who, who were of no good, who had no money. You would just throw them in a field and, and just bury them. Probably not even a cave. But what we see that the angels themselves came and carried him to heaven. What you and I at this time would call heaven. While the rich man wakes up in Hades, what you and I today would call hell. Who now has God's favor? As a side note, we read that Lazarus, again, is not even buried. The rich man, though, is most likely buried by his family with all the fancy trappings due to his station life with many, many mourners and everyone else mourning his death, though probably those who were inheriting his estate were probably pretty happy. Yet for all his wealth, he is now found destitute in anguish and in torment, apart from the favor of God. Haiti describes the grave. When you see that word, it's the, the Greek word for hell or for Sheol. It describes the grave, the place you go when you die, the place of the dead, the underworld, the place of punishment. John MacArthur points out, you'll see here on the monitor, that Christ pictured Hades as a place where the unspeakable torment of hell had already begun. Look what he writes here. Among the miseries featured here in this parable are unquenchable flame, an accusing conscience fed by undying memories of lost opportunity and permanent irreversible separation from God and everything good. This is not a place that anyone would want to wind up. To many today, they're under deception that this life is all that there is. That there is no final judgment or life after death. Just live life. You know, live fast and live, uh, leave a, what's a, a good-looking corpse, right? It was that John Dean that said that or something to that effect. Or they argue that life here on earth is hell. 
Or they joke that hell is a place where all their friends will be living the good life. I want to go to hell because that's where we are and it's just a 24-hour party. However, hell is a place of conscience torment that never ends. Conscience. We are alive. We are conscious of what's going on. We understand what our stake in life is. Jesus warned elsewhere that hell is a place where their worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. Jesus then shares a conversation that the rich man has with Abraham in verse 24. The first part of the conversation includes a plea for mercy. So that's what you see the first one. He has a plea for mercy. Look at verse 24. And he, the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus just to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue. For I am anguish in this flame. His first request is a plea of mercy asking Abraham to send Lazarus to give him some relief from, from the heat that's emanating from the fire. Curiously, he doesn't plead his case that he is in the wrong place or doesn't deserve to be in Hades. He doesn't complain that he is in hell or that Lazarus is in prison. He doesn't cry out that his plight is unfair or he demands justice. <clears throat> See, he, he understands that he is in his rightful place, his chosen place. And here's a note that you and I must understand that in hell, all will recognize that that is where they belong. And in hell, people still will reject Christ. So we imagine hell is a place where everyone wants to get out. I'll accept Christ now. I'll accept Christ. But that's not how hell is presented in Scripture. He bases his appeal for relief, for mercy, based on his heritage. Notice that he addresses Abraham as father. The religious leaders, as well as others, set their hope in their lineage, their ancestry, and their genealogy. They are sons of Abraham. So he's trying to get some, say, you know, it's like a, a daughter or a son, little coming to you and say, Daddy, Mommy, can you do this? Their, their, their plea is based on the relationship. Again, he, he doesn't care about whether or not he's in the presence of God. He just, he just, he just wants relief from his thirst. And again, he shows his selfish attitude. Did you notice that? And that he still views Lazarus as beneath him, as a servant. He says, Father, everyone give me some water. He says, no, you send Lazarus over here to dip his finger in water so that he can just touch my tongue. He's asking for that which he denied the beggar himself. You notice that? The one who gave no mercy now demands mercy. Please for mercy, from the one that he would not even notice or give any relief to. Abraham, in verse 25, answers, he says, but Abraham, as a child, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like matter, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you are a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. It is, a, it is a eternal place. There is no meeting at, the, at a border. There's no DMZ, you know, demilitarized zone there. There's no safe place. There is no overlap. One cannot work himself from one to the other. 
Theologian James Edward notes that the second temple Judaism believed that for that, that the blessed and the damned were actually able to view one another from their respective outposts, hence why we would say that they could see each other, and that their views increased both the joy of the one and the torment of the other. Essentially, he informs the rich man, Abraham does, that he's out of luck. There's no relief available. He is getting his just desserts. Plus, there's no way to traverse this great separate chasm that separates the two. The rich man expects no respite. He, expect, he can expect no reprieve, no release, or no refreshment for his anguish and torment. In verse 27, as we continue, we read his second plea. That one fails. So he says, and he said, Then I beg you, Father to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to the place of torment. So this seems to be a good thing. I don't want my brothers to join me here. This is not a place I would want anyone to come to. But once again, he views Lazarus as his personal servant, whose only purpose is to serve his needs. This time, at least, his request is focused on his brothers and their eternal life, though he doesn't think about anyone else. However, again, Abraham answers in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, let them read the prophets and the Old Testament, as you and I know. Let them hear them. Let them read them. And then they can find the warning of what's happening that they too may repent and change their mind and not remain unconvinced. He points out that there's already a witness and a warning found in what you and I call the Old Testament. The rich man himself remained unconvinced about the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament. He rejected it. The rich man counters in verse 30. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent. If Lazarus would go and they know that he is dead and he comes from the dead, they would believe him. That would convince them. Many, he's convinced that his brothers would believe that they had some miraculous event. Then they would have no recourse but believe. Of course, haven't we all thought the same thing? Man, if God would just write his will in a skywriting or write it on the wall like he did in Daniel or, or if he would appear now, right? If, if he would just do this or do that, then, then, then I can be convinced that this is what the Bible says is true. Others had said the same thing for our family, for our friends that may not know Christ. But once again, Abram responds to a second plea in verse 31, when he says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And here we find the crux of the parable. Jesus gets down to the nitty-gritty by calling the Pharisees to repent due to their lack of trusting in the Scriptures. Jesus was not changing the rules of the game. He was not abolishing the law. He was not preaching a new message, but he was fulfilling the promises that had been proclaimed in the Old Testament. It was the Pharisees who were not convinced by the law and the prophets. So speaking then, the key here is, know you want. Everything you need to know is found 
in the Old Testament. The warning, the witness. And there's two points I want us to consider. Two truths, two doctrines that's important for us to understand from this passage. Two doctrines we have to understand. The first truth is that there is a day of judgment coming. There is a day of judgment coming. When all must give account of their life. In Acts chapter 10, we read that the uh, the apostles commanded, or that God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus Christ, is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. There will be a day when Jesus will stand and he will judge the living and dead. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy in the importance of warning in his preaching. He says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. So that gives us as elders, when you and I, you hear us, there's times we are going to reprove. We need to correct your, your, your wrong thinking, or as my brother used to say, your stinking thinking. We need to understand what the Bible says. We need to, times where we may need to rebuke and say, you are unbiblical in your thinking and in your behavior and your life. And to exhort, we want to convince you of the truths that are found in Scripture. We're to do it with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because there is a day where you will stand before God and give an account of all that you've done and thought. The things you've done, the things you haven't done. It'll be the very word of God that will stand and be a witness against us. This passage, though, is not teaching. Get this, though, this side note. This This passage is not teaching that the rich go to hell and the poor go to heaven. You can't trust on that. Because then I'm then most of us are probably going straight through, right? But that's not how you get to heaven or to hell. Jesus did warn his disciples in Matthew, you'll see it here on the monitor, that Jesus said to disciples, Truly I say to you, with only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. So there is a truth that it's going to be much more difficult for those who wealth. And by the way, For those of us who live in America, we are the wealthy. Poverty today by the UN is is declared of $2, I think, and 50 cents a day. Most of us do that in spades. Again, I say, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. So there is a danger there. When they heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So there is a, a truth that we need to be careful, but you and I actually fall in this category. Because especially here, we just think of just Orange County itself. Wealth is a high standard, is it not? If you tell people you're from Orange County, they think of a certain thing, right? A certain level of, of accomplishment and wealth, even though that's not full Orange County, right? We're all not living in mansions in Newport and Huntington, right? We aren't. But yet that's how the world sees. That's how Americans see Orange County. And so we need to understand that our money is not going to get us to heaven. And our, and our, and our lack of wealth, though, will not get us to heaven as well. Turn, if you would, to Philippians. Wealth will not secure your place in heaven or hell, but we do need to be careful of it. 
Remember, the Pharisees were lovers of money. And to be honest, I share this only with you because many of us are unconvinced of the truths of Scripture because of what it might cost us. And so many times wealth becomes a barrier. But nor can you trust in your heritage or your ancestry or your family connections. The Apostle Paul warns himself, warned that these things cannot save you. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Start with me in verse 4. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. He's saying, I am a, I am a son of Abraham. I, I deserve, uh, I, 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 he's not saying I deserve to go to heaven, but he says, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, I have reason to be very, very uh, convinced that I will go to heaven. But he go on what he says. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you want wealth, then pursue a surpassing wealth of knowledge of Jesus Christ. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. This is what God gives his people. What was impossible with man is impossible with God. We get not the righteousness of Peter or Paul or even John the Baptist or Moses or David. We get the very righteousness of God when we repent and turn to Christ. He says, that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You want to rise from the dead? You want to live forever? Then it's about knowing Christ. The Pharisees were counting on their wealth. That was a sign of Yahweh's favor. They were counting on their heritage and their good works to secure a place in the kingdom of God. Yet they're sorely mistaken, just as the rich man in this parable. Their rejection of Jesus' free invitation through him sealed their eternal fate of eternal damnation. Quick note. From this passage, we learn that hell is a real place. It is a place of conscience torment. It's a place that cannot be escaped from. It is a place of fire and punishment. Uh, no one will desire to repent there. All will continue to reject the goodness and kindness of God. They will still shake their fist at him. One misconception is that hell is a place of just separation from God. However, there is nowhere where you and I can escape from the presence of God. God is even there in hell. It is a place that receives the full wrath of God. No mercy, just justice, his wrath. It is a place that will not receive any reprieve or any goodness, kindness, or mercy, any favor from the almighty creator of the universe. In the end, hell itself will be thrown into the lake of fire that has been reserved for Satan and his demonic horde. 
for those who remain unconvinced of the truth of scriptures, it's a place of conscience, eternal torment. Hence why you and I must warn and plead for our families, our friends and others about that final destination. We have many in our lives that are unconvinced of who Jesus is. I believe there are many people that are in the pews, that are in churches, that are members, maybe even deacons, maybe even pastors who remain unconvinced as we just saw in that, uh, some of those surveys of the state of theology. You and I cannot remain unconvinced. And while our families or friends are unconvinced, you and I must understand that we do not know when death comes. Just, what is it, not yesterday, the day before, in South Korea, over 156 people are dead from a Halloween party, crushed. That number's going to go up as there's many others that are still in critical condition, and hundreds were injured. They said they were just bringing, they, they were so many that, that the first responders were asking other people to start doing CPR. And they said, I'm doing CPR. I don't know how to do it. And so they, they were telling them how to do CPR to bring those that were dead back to life. But they said, we don't even know how to do it. So they were telling them to do it. He goes, but I'm beating on the heart or the chest of someone who is already dead. And you must recognize that, that when you and I are sharing the gospel, they are already spiritually dead, but we have to continue that spiritual CPR of helping those that remain unconvinced of the truth of Christ, that he's here. And the kingdom of God has arrived. And we do not want them to spend the rest of their lives under the very wrath of God. So how do we do that? Well, the rich man says, well, send someone from the dead. They'll believe them. But God hasn't given that to us, which leads us to our second truth, the second doctrine. And that's the sufficiency of Scripture. That's what Abraham said. Believe the Scriptures. I've already given you everything that you need to know. Wayne Grumman, you'll see this here. You may want to take a picture of it with your phone or some of that. Get this down. He says, this doctrine, the sufficiency of Scripture, means that Scripture contains all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of the redemptive history. And that it now contains all the words of God that we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. Does, leave it there a bit if you would. Does it have everything I want to know on it? No. But it's everything that God intended you and I to know. And it gives us everything that we need. So when we stand before God and we say, but your word didn't say that. He says, all right, but this is, I'm judging you by the word of God. I'm going to judge you by that which I have tended to reveal to you and all that I've given to you. And so you and I need to come that the sufficiency of scripture, that is all things that you and I need to know. The apostle Peter writes in his first letter, says that tell us, speaking of Christians, you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, that which does not fail. Through the living and abiding word of God. The word of the Lord remains forever, he writes. And the word is the good news that was preached to you. Through whom? Through Christ, disciples, the apostles, and even the word that's being preached to you today. The word of God is living and active. And it can convince even those 
that are most hardened of hearts. In 2 Timothy, I believe this might be on the monitor. He's talking to Timothy once again. Paul is. He says, but as for you, continue what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, the prophets and the law, the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Even the Old Testament uh, leads to Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, direct, uh, for reproof, for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter real quickly if you would. Again, speaking of the sufficiency of Scripture, the importance of Scripture, of giving us all that God has intended for us to know and to encourage us and to lead us to Him. 2 Peter, near the end of the New Testament, look at chapter 1, and then verses 3 through 5, or 3 through 4, excuse me. Peter writes that God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All that God, when we stand before God, he has given us everything that we are to know, to do, and obey. He says, through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, speaking of Christ, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. It's in the word of God that we find the promises. So that through them, speaking of the scripture, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. You see, Pastor MacArthur notes that the rich man was in hell forever, not because he lacked information, but because he ignored the message he received through the law and the prophets, through the word of God. And so it is with the Pharisees and those that rejected Christ during his ministry. So it is for those of us today in which we have a more complete picture of God's redemptive plan with the addition of the New Testament. You and I have something that they did not have. We have the full word of God. That's why Paul can write in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith, being convinced that you can trust Christ, comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Not through signs, not through wonders, not through miracles, but through the word of God. Everything that remains to convince us is found in his word. So with that, you and I have a decision to make. One that is, has eternal stakes. What would it take for you to accept Jesus? Your family, your friends. Are you still looking for some sign, some writing on the wall, or some sky writing to convince you of the words of Christ to repent, to turn to follow him? Let me ask, as a believer, how are you approaching sharing the good news of the gospel? Many try science, right? Let's see what science can show us. Maybe nature, other types of evidence, reason, apologetics, or some other type of met method to, to help those that are unconvinced to be convinced of the truth of God. These all have some value. God has left much evidence through science. Science is only finding the mind of God and how he works through nature 
and the reason to point out his existence. We do have reason. It's one of the ways in which we are like God. King David say, say, uh, sung, sings in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky uh, above proclaims his handiwork. So even creation shows it. He says the same thing in Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain, is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For you might say, well, what about those people that are in Brazil and some of those, those islands or some of those other places where they've never heard the word of God? And they now are going to face eternal, the wrath of God for eternity because they did not go Christ? Well, God says they have the, they, they know. He says they're without excuse because I've already given them a witness through creation itself. Some might say, yes, but if someone did rise from the dead, that would convince him, right? If someone, you ever been to a funeral and somebody rise from the dead, would that convince you of something? It would convince me that the, that the doctors and the, and the mortician did not do their jobs properly. <laughs> that would be one thing. Take your Bibles and turn to John 11. So what about the argument? Yeah, someone did rise from the dead or some great miracle like that. That would convince everybody that Jesus is Lord. Well, let's take a quick look at another man named Lazarus. In John 11, we see Jesus is, we're gonna, uh, we're, I don't think we'll see the story in Luke, but Jesus is going towards Jerusalem. And one of his best friends dies. He's, Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, which we've heard much about. We see that Lazarus dies. Jesus comes finally and he's in the grave. And you and I know more than most of the story. They come to him and Mary gets all over him about it. Or Martha, or I think it's Mary, or maybe it's Martha, or maybe it's Mary. One or the other gets all over him. And they say, you, if you would have been here, he would have been alive. But Jesus says, this is for the glory of God. You and I know the story. Jesus comes to him. It says, roll away the door, roll away the, the, the stone that, that covered the tomb. They were buried in caves back then. They said, no, Lord, he's been dead three days. He now stinks. Let's do it anyway. He opens it up and he just shouts. He says, Lazarus, come forth. The dead does rise. And he comes out in his grave clothes. I mean, talking about zombie apocalypse, you're just seeing this right now. He's coming out all mummified, right? Grave clothes still on him. So the dead did come alive. John chapter 11, look at verse 45. But many of the Jews, in verse 45, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and, Mary, with, with Mary and had seen what he did, they believed in him. So there were some who saw what Jesus did and they believed him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had did. The tattletales. You know, that one that wants to tattle on somebody. Do you see what Jesus did? He raised someone from the dead. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Again, many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, speaking of the temple. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, said, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand it's better for you that one man should die for the people and that not, not, not the whole nation should perish. It goes on, it says, from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Were they convinced? 
I think they convinced Jesus was someone, maybe even the Son of God. They recognized he had great power. They recognized that he had the, the, the method and the way to make many believe. But they themselves remained unconvinced. All it did was harden their hearts to kill him. But then go to John chapter 12, the next chapter. What about Lazarus? Look at verse 9. And when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Let's see the man who waked from the dead, who came from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because of account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing. So there were some that believed. It would convince some, but to others, they would still remain unconvinced and more likely to reject him. So much for wondrous miracles and supernatural signs. In summary, you and I must understand that the good news of the kingdom of God is that God receives all those who repent of their sin, pick up their cross, deny themselves, and follow Christ. Now, this this message is difficult for many to accept. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 here on the screen, he says, for the word of the cross, the fact that someone is going to die and rise from again is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the sermon of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Those who rely on wisdom and evidence to be convinced? Has not God not made foolish, or has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, through these types of evidences, but it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach, that Christ crucified to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign. Hence why the Pharisees, why the rich man is looking for a sign. That will convince my brothers And the Greeks seek after wisdom. They want some word of knowledge, something that they haven't heard before. Paul says, no, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Through man, it's impossible. But through God, he makes it possible. How? Through the sufficiency of Scripture. You and I must hold to that truth. You see, only the Holy Spirit can open the eyes of those that are spiritually dead. It can calm the mind that is hostile to God, that remains unconvinced, and replace a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Let us this morning give thanks for the word of God. For it is sufficient to open our eyes through the work of the Holy Spirit and is able to transfer us from the domain of darkness into the domain of light. Let us hold on to the word of God as our anchor and dedicate ourselves to sharing the good news of the kingdom of God and God's free offer of salvation. For all you and I need is scripture. For Jesus is proclaiming that the promises of God had been fulfilled in him. Amen. I pray that there's none here that remain unconvinced. 
any that may be watching me later on YouTube or any of the other social medias, that you remain, that you do not remain unconvinced, but understand that God has sent Christ in our stead. Amen? Every head bowed and every head closed. As the worship team comes up and Randy, I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider this passage of Scripture. Maybe it's the first time you've heard it. Maybe you've heard it maybe a little bit differently today. I want you to pray. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, in what ways do I remain unconvinced of the truth of Scripture? In what ways will I stand condemned before Christ on that last days? In which way will God give blessings upon me because I have been obedient and trusted in his word? Maybe your commitment is, Lord, just help me through scripture to live a life that is pleasing to you. Let my life show others that I'm convinced of the truth. It's not enough just to say it, but to live our lives as we are convinced that Jesus is Christ. And may the Holy Spirit do his work through this week in your life. Let's pray. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.